I was an intern for a couple of years at Indiana University, and I met a kid while I was there named JT. And he was a freshman, got involved pretty much immediately with RUF, hung around for a couple months. And then in the fall of freshman, the fall of his freshman year, JT met this girl named Ashley. Now, Ashley was very pretty, and you know what that means. We did not see JT again for another two years. Uh, it was, I, I, JT was gone off the reservation. He started spending all his time and his attention on making and keeping her happy. And you know, a couple years later, I, I randomly saw him. I saw him out on the you know on campus and asked him, you know, do you want to get lunch, catch up? And surprisingly, he agreed. He said, "I've actually been meaning to reach out to somebody and talk. Uh, I've been going through some stuff, and I, I want to talk." And I was like, "Great, yeah, I'm the guy to talk. I would love to talk to you." And we sat down uh, a week later, and he told me. I asked him, you know, what was going on the previous week, and he told me that. He and Ashley had actually broken up, that he had actually begged her, like gotten down on his hands and knees and begged her to stay and not to leave him and that he had loved her and, you know, it was was something that he wanted to talk to me about. And, you know, of course, I try to like console JT. I'm like, man, I'm so sorry that that happened. But the weird thing was as I consoled him, he kind of like brushed me off. And started being like, well, actually, you know, like I know it was bad, but actually, I'm feeling really good. Like these days, like I'm, I'm over it. I was like, wow, man, that's impress and, and really impressive. How did you get over Alice so, or uh, Ashley so fast? Her name, real name was not Alice. So I don't think it was, it was that. Uh, her. How'd you get over Alice so fast? Alex, whatever her name was. And he says, he says, well, you know, I think that Jess has helped. And I go. I'm sorry. I thought her name was Alex or Alice or whatever it was. I, are you talking about, did you just say Jess? And he goes, yeah, Jess is my new girlfriend. <laughs> right. Uh, when I, you know, I ask him like, you know, how's that been? He goes, we, we spend all of our time together. In fact, we, you know, my roommate is actually never home. So uh, we literally, I mean, from morning till all the way the next morning, we are always inseparable and I pressed him on whether he thought he was putting himself at risk, you know, by moving on too quickly and maybe leading her on, or maybe that she could just move on just as quickly. He'd already latched onto another girl. Like, what would that do to him if she left? And he said this to me, uh, and this is almost a verbatim quote I'm the kind of guy who doesn't do well on my own, right? I just kind of need somebody to be there for me, you know? Like, and Jess is that somebody. And I asked, so if it wasn't her, it would be somebody else. And he responded, well, yeah. I mean, at least at some point. I mean, I, I need it. Like a, like a dope addict. Like, I need it, right? What JT was expressing to me, though I'm sure he didn't realize it this way at the time, may not have even put it this way, was that he deeply felt a need to be justified, right? He needed someone to look at him every night and every morning and tell him, that he was worth loving, that he was good enough, that he mattered. And the truth is, for JT, the, like, the hotter that girl, the more justified he felt, right? The higher his sense of worth. That's why he spent all of his time trying to keep the girls that showed him attention. It didn't matter what the search for that significance did to him or the girl that he was using, right? What mattered was that his needs were met. Now, 
before we all go dumping on JT, because you guys, a couple of you gasped, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he would date that girl. Like, that's so immature of him. Uh, can I just say that maybe, you know, some people in the room, you might be like JT, that you think an encounter with the right boyfriend or girlfriend would make you feel like you're enough. But we can also do the same stuff in being straight A students, right? We can say, I want to be good enough at my 1.7 jobs or uh, I want to be picked for the internship or the class project or have my family's approval. We all look to something that tells us that we are enough, that tells us that we matter. And the Bible calls this pursuit worship. It just it calls it worship. That's what really all of that is. We look to something outside of ourselves to justify ourselves. And when that something isn't God, the Bible calls this idolatry. Right? It calls it idolatry. We serve that something or someone and we orient our, our lives around it, uh, trying to please what the Bible calls a false idol. For JT, right, he oriented his life around girlfriends. I don't know what that is for you. right? You may not fashion a little figurine out of wood or stone or believe a king like Pharaoh is God. Right? The Israelites in our passage tonight will literally think of a man as God. You may not, uh, you know, bow down to anything physically, but it won't stop you from centering your life on something or someone. We all do that. That's who we are as creatures. And in tonight's passage, we're going to see that this idol worship, we're going to see what it does to people. We're going to see the beauty and grace of the God we're meant to worship. Instead, how he liberates us from that slavery to these false idols to serve the living God. That's really like the two points I'm going to make uh, this evening that we're going to look at is just the grief of false gods and the grace of the living God, right? The grief of false gods and the grace of the living God, Yahweh. All right, let's read Exodus 5 together, a little bit of chapter 6. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, by the way, afterward is Moses and Aaron came, were like, hey, Yahweh is going to liberate us. And they were all like, woohoo, yeah, we're going to get liberated from Egypt. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Remember also the Lord, when it's all capitalized like that, that's uh, God's proper name, which he's revealed earlier. It's Yahweh. Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let have your work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. 
So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day. It's when there was straw. And the foremen of the people, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people came, foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You're idle. This is why you say, Let us go to sacrifice the Lord, to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, Yahweh, look on you and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to, the, to Yahweh and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but the name Yahweh I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to, the, to Yahweh, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. All right, thanks for sticking with me. I know that was a lot. Let's pray. O Yahweh, O God, we pray that you would Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, let's explore our first point, the grief of false gods, right? Look with me at how this whole episode starts in verse 1 of chapter 5. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Moses and Aaron go go to meet with Pharaoh for the first time. And what follows is actually very typical of a king-to-king correspondence in the ancient Near East, right? Look at how they begin. Thus says Yahweh, 
Remember, again, the Lord is a stand-in for God's proper name. Now, that formula, thus says so-and-so, is one Pharaoh would have been actually very familiar with. The uh, Amarna letters, I don't know if you've ever heard of these, uh, there are a group of correspondences we have from around 1500 BC letters that kings actually wrote to each other, including Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Uh, and he would write to lesser Near Eastern kings, and he would use that same prophetic formula to begin his address. Thus says Pharaoh. Thus says, you know, King Armin or whatever, right? That's probably why the name Yahweh uh, is followed up by the apposition, the God of Israel, right? The Lord, the God of Israel. It's because if not, Pharaoh might have assumed Yahweh was a, a human, like a human name. You know, there, maybe he's a self-styled king of the Israelite slaves that he owns. But their king, Pharaoh learns, is actually a god, and his, and his name is Yahweh. This is not uh, where the formula for the correspondence ends, though. The correspondence itself even mirrors the tradition at the time for kings that wrote to other kings. Yahweh requests a favor of Pharaoh by asking for something smaller in anticipation for an even greater ask. Uh, when I first read this, I thought that Moses and Aaron might have just been scared and just like copped out and were like, can we go for a feast for a few days? You know, I don't want to ask for the outright like freedom thing, but that's actually not how it works. They ask to merely hold a feast because when they don't uh, ask for favors like we do in our modern context, right? Think about how we barter with people. You ask for something really crazy so that that way when you ask for something smaller, it seems more reasonable, right? When you ask your parents... If you, you know, you're like, can I get a tattoo? And they're like, absolutely not. When you're in high school, maybe, or you might've asked them for something like that. Can I get a tattoo? Can I have a car? And then you're, they're like, no, absolutely not. You're going to do those things. And you're like, can I have like 35 bucks to go see a concert? And they're like, seems reasonable. You know, right. You ask for something really crazy so that that way it doesn't seem so weird when you ask for something smaller. And that was the custom at the ancient, in the ancient world. It's not deceitful either. Like when we do it, we mean it to be deceitful, but Pharaoh himself would have, employed the, a similar line of reasoning. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a Cousin Eddie style of negotiation. Y'all ever watch Christmas Vacation, right? He drives, the, he drives the, the mobile home up into the yard, and he's like, hey, can I stay with you? And they're like, I guess you can stay with us. And he goes, great. And then Clark's like, well, let us know if we can do anything else for you. And he goes, actually, you can. You can take care of these two kids so we can have the mobile home inside. And, and he, like, pushes the kids off into the house, and now it's too crowded right? Like this is how Moses and Aaron are smuggling in this request. And Aaron, and Pharaoh would have known it immediately, right? That how, how the convention of the time is, if you're a king asking a favor of another king, you ask for something small and you say, while you're already at it, while you're already, you know, helping me out in this little thing, what if you also help me with this bigger thing, right? And uh, that's how you curry favor with uh, another sovereign, the plan is always to leave Egypt permanently, and Pharaoh would have known that. And that explains Pharaoh's reaction in verse 2, right? It, all, it always seems like he's like kind of overreacting in verse 2. We good? So, y'all, y'all keep working. It's not a big deal. Uh, I, I'm, yeah, anyways, so like in verse 2, Pharaoh is, you know, kind of, it seems like he's kind of overreacting. They asked to go away for like a few days for a feast, and then he's like, absolutely not. But it's because he sees through their meager requests and he calls their bluff, right? He's not going to let them go even for a feast. But pay closer attention to Pharaoh's rationale. Like how does he make this decision? How does, how does he make this decision and it leads to grief? 
He believes he doesn't have to obey this God of Israel in verse 2, if you look at it. He doesn't have to obey this God of Israel because he doesn't know Yahweh. Now, what does he mean by that? Here's the thing. He was just introduced to him, right? If, if this is actually mirroring an ancient Near East tradition of, you know, kings speaking to each other, he is actually now made aware of who Yahweh is. He's the king of the Israelites, right? He's their, he's their God. But he says that he doesn't know him, and that's because, right, he doesn't know him in a deeper sense. If you'll remember a couple of weeks ago from chapter 2, it says that uh, God knew his people, right, that uh, there's the same word for know. And I, I said there, and it's true here as well, that knowing somebody is more than just like mentally assenting to their existence. It's more than just knowing that they exist. It's to be close to them. It's to have intimacy with them. And the truth is that Pharaoh is far from Yahweh. He doesn't have intimacy with this God. And it makes sense, you know, even after making this introduction, because Pharaoh already has a God. He himself is the incarnation of the God Horus, the son of the almighty sun god Ray. And who is this Yahweh to tell Horus what to do, to tell a God like Pharaoh what to do? And so, being the God he is, Pharaoh naturally concludes, I know what the problem is here, right? I'm all-powerful. They're talking about some other deity that I don't even know about, right? I know what the problem is here. You're not working hard enough. You have too much time on your hands, and you're believing lies, is what Pharaoh says. They're making up other gods other than himself to worship. So, I'll remind you what kind of God I am, with who the real God is. And so he not only says no, but he proceeds to force the Israelites to make bricks without straw. Now, I'll be honest, every time I've read this up to now, I've been like, I have like, I guess that's hard to make bricks without straw, I assume, because, you know, it's supposed to be a punishment. Uh, just so you guys know, uh, the, like, I don't know how, you, how much you know about ancient architecture, but bricks in Egypt are essentially just mud that is left to dry in the sun, right? Which means it can be very brittle and crack once it dries. Uh, But to withstand the harsh harsh weather in Egypt, buildings needed especially strong bricks and mixing straw with the clay would allow the clay to bind together to something solid instead of just melting and like, you know, going everywhere. It can bind to something solid and it helps the bricks to dry evenly, right? And, and see how, uh, even Pharaoh communicates this message to Israel. Look with me at verse 10, right? Not only does he say, I'm going to show you what kind of God I am. Look at how he says it. Pharaoh begins his address that he gives through his messengers. Thus says Pharaoh, right? Compare that to verse one. Pharaoh essentially says, oh yeah, thus says Yahweh. Thus says Yah. Thus says me, right? Look, I don't think you know who I am. I'm the only God here, and these people belong to me, and they do what I say. And what's saddest of all is how the message is conveyed and even received by the Israelites. You'd think the Israelite people, right? We just said the last chapter, they're all super excited about the fact that Yahweh is going to deliver them. You'd think that these people, you know, would see through Pharaoh's power play, and, you know, he's not so tough, right? We don't have to listen to Pharaoh now. Yahweh is going to deliver us. Unfortunately, this is not how God's chosen people respond. Look with me again at verse 10. Look at me again at verse 10. Who is delivering this message for Pharaoh? Right? Who is helping him prop himself up as a God over the Israelites? It says that it's 
the taskmasters and foremen. Now, the taskmasters were Egyptians, right? People who worked for Pharaoh himself. That's why they end up beating the people later. But look at verse 15. The foremen were Israelites. They've buddied up to Pharaoh and are acknowledging his supreme power. Now, here's the thing. Maybe we can cut them a little slack, right? As you read through this passage, you're like, man, that's a tricky situation. Yes, their allegiance is supposed to be Yahweh as the, to be to Yahweh as their deliverer, but they simply aren't liberated yet, right? But when the task before them becomes too great and they're beaten for it, they they really tell on themselves, right? They they acknowledge where their allegiance truly lies. Look again at verse fifteen. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, "Why do you treat your servants like this?" At the end of the day, they are Pharaoh's servants. That's who they're looking to to ease their burden. That's who they're looking to to say, you know, we're doing our best, right? We're doing the best we can. That should be enough. We're trying to serve you, to obey you, to please you, to make you happy. Why aren't you happy? They don't turn to God. They turn to Pharaoh with their hardship. Pharaoh is their true God and king, the one to whom they bend the knee in service. And it makes sense. After 430 years of slavery, God's people can't even imagine what it's like to not be slaves to Pharaoh. Instead of turning to Yahweh, trusting him, they run to Pharaoh and attempt to pacify the one that they actually think is in control of the whole situation. Now, here's the thing, right? When they worship this other God, where does it get them? Where does it get them? It gets them where all idolatry gets us. It gets them pain. Idols never love us back the way that we love them, the way that we serve them. After being beaten in verse 14 and coming to Pharaoh with their tail between their legs, look at how Pharaoh responds to their pleas. They're like, you know, buddying up to him. Hey, we're just your servants. Look at how Pharaoh responds to, in verses 17 through 18. Doesn't budge an inch, right? Basically just says exactly the same thing that he said the first time. Uh, did you know? Essentially, did I stutter? Go back and do what I told you. He demands as much as he always has, and doesn't care about their new straw sort new straw shortage. He is relentless in his demands. He doesn't care about the Israelites as they seek to use him, right? Manipulate him to give them safety. He says, No, 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 no. I'm going to use you to make bricks without straw. Right? I, you can be, yeah, you can be my humble servants. Now do what I say. This, friends, man, this is the grief of idolatry. If you give yourself to being a straight A student, right? It's, yes, you don't probably have like some actual physical taskmaster who like tells you what to do and that you have to do all the things he says or he's going to beat you. But man, things spiritually beat us all the time when we give ourselves to them, don't they? Right? If you want to be a straight A student, your grades don't care if you, you know, I don't know if your computer shorts out in the middle of the night when you're three-fourths of the way through your paper and it's due the next day. Your computer doesn't care about that. Your grades don't care about that. They're not going to love you. They're just going to let you fail. You can give yourself to the approval of a boyfriend or girlfriend, but what happens when they inevitably do something hurtful to you, right? Maybe you just eat their slights in hopes that they, you know, that they'll stay with you, just become a doormat. Uh, and the truth is, like, man, our culture even knows how, how rough that life is, right? Uh, it's, it's actually become so common in our modern culture that devoid of biblical vocabulary for it, we have actually created a new label besides idolater for someone who acts like that, and it's called being a simp. Y'all realize that? 
That that's essentially what a simp is. It's somebody who, who idolizes a girl, right? You're a Christian if you worship Christ. You're a simp if you worship women, right? That's, that's essentially how it works. Let's be honest, right? This is why, you know, more and more of you are probably diving headfirst into uh, the sins of, uh, and vices of things like pornography, right? All of the acceptance, the affirmation without any of the, the harsh ramifications of being a simp, right? Without any of the, the baggage of having to take on people being mean to you, they'll just always affirm you all the time. The person will always look in the camera, look at you from the screen and tell you that you're enough, right? But of course, this ignores the fact that you're actually just a lonely person sitting in front of a screen asking it to love you, right? Or if it's not porn, right, you reach to control your weight, right? If, the, if only the scale or the number on the back of my jeans is the right number, then, then I'll be enough, right? But does, does that scale care about you, right? Does that tag care about how, how much or how, how little you eat, right? It will always demand more from you. The same is true for approval of friends. You'll, you'll take all sorts of abuse or abuse others when you make social acceptance your, uh, your God, right? When you tell it's that like, it's going to define your worth, you'll gossip to make yourself look better and you'll covet other people when they're loved and when they're praised. Even the love of your families, right? Which I would argue are supposed to be like all these other things, a God-given gift, right? They make very poor gods. What happens when mom or dad don't approve of your future spouse, even though they're, they're great, or they make you out to be the black sheep of your family for having to move away for some calling, some vocational calling that you have, instead of living next door to them and making your life about pleasing them and, and being, you know, giving them grandchildren. I don't know, right? Having your world revolve around them. What if they castigate you for that? Are you willing to let your parents be disappointed in you? If you give yourself to any of these things, man, if you, give, if you let them be your idols, they will never love you back the way that you love them. Any more than Pharaoh does the Israelites, right? They take and they take, just like he does. And what's worse, right, they'll even turn you against the people who try to rescue you from them. Think about this in this passage. Think about this. Moses and Aaron come. They're like, I got Yahweh on our side. They show him like miracles, staff turning into a snake, all this stuff. And they say, we're here to rescue you. And then once, you know, as soon as Pharaoh starts to crack down, as soon as that idol starts to slip out of their hands and it costs something to them, right? They immediately look at, look at verses 20 through 21. The people turn against Moses and Aaron for the hardship they're enduring. And uh, this is what Moses says in verses 22 through 23. As a response, if only God had just left them alone to continue their slavery uninterrupted, everything would have been fine. <laughs> That's the logic that this turns into, right? That uh, they, they essentially bite the hand that's trying to feed them. Slavery would have been fine, right? How, how crazy is that? But have you ever tried to tell a friend that like their girlfriend's kind of lame or is like mean to them? Like, have you ever tried to like, there's a reason that there's a whole new girl episode about like, don't tell, don't tell them. Like you can't tell them that it's, that it's awful or whatever. Right. You have to be supportive of whoever they date. Um, right. Have you ever told somebody that they're too stressed about school or they work too much? Have you ever tried to like confront one of your friends about one of these things? Man, they get angry. People will get angry with you for trying to help them. Liberators, right. They cost us the approval of our false gods. 
And the truth is, without something even more grand and more beautiful to take its place, we will fight the people who try to separate us from them. Right? This is why Jesus says, you know, do not be, surpri- be surprised when the world reviles you. We'd be better off, right, saith, saith the Israelites, we'd be better off at least trying to make our, our idolatry work. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. We have something more grand. We have something more beautiful in God. That's our second point tonight, the grace of Yahweh. And we'll look at this as I close. Look at me at chapter 6. Look at me at chapter 6. Now, how do you think God ought to respond to all this faithlessness on behalf of Israel? Right? How do you think, you know, in your heart of hearts, right? You might know, I know some of y'all grown up in the church, and so you're like, God forgives them, right? Like, you, you know the answer, but like, if you're really honest with yourself, how do, you, how do you respond when somebody is faithless to you, right? When somebody hurts you, when somebody ignores you, when you're trying to help? Like, how do you think God ought to respond to this? How do you think God ought to treat the people who clearly lose all heart when pressed and they immediately run off to another God? How does he respond to his own people, whom he loves as his own son, he says in chapter 4, when they don't love him back? Do you ever have a father or a mother not love you back when you were really mean to them, right? Ever hurt, hurt somebody so bad? Like our natural reaction is not to just push right past that. But look at verse 1. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. He responds not with condemnation, but with resolution to deliver his people. Here's something you guys need to understand about God that you don't. You You think you do, but you really don't understand about, about God. God delights in rescuing his people. Like he... He loves rescuing his people. He loves delivering them from the idols of their life. I mean, did you know that? It's, it's easy to forget, right, that the longer that we're enslaved, that God actually loves to liberate us. The longer that we look to those other idols, those other false gods, we tend to think like, God, I mean, as long as I've been here, like, I'm sure you're tired of me asking you to help, and I'm sure you're tired of me, you know, going to this thing. There's no way you there's no way you really want me. Right? After a while we start to convince ourselves like it's just been one too many times and I mean maybe you do it but like it's probably begrudgingly at this point. But consider consider this claim from Hebrews 12 too. It says this. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Do you hear that? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It says that Jesus saved us from our idolatry and sin out of joy. He died on the cross, the death we should die, the death the Israelites should die for their lack of faith, right? He dies on that cross for joy. God doesn't hate his fickle people. He's jealous for them. I mean, this is why Apostle Paul, you know, similarly says in Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? He doesn't, we don't wrestle against each other. We are not the enemies, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God doesn't hate you. You're not his enemy. The idols are. And what he, what he comes to his people to say is that he will deliver them from those idols, He will deliver them from Pharaoh. 
That's what's coming in chapter 7. And he reiterates that promise that he will deliver them out of slavery with an outstretched arm in verse 6. He'll take them as his people, promised in verse 7. He'll give them a land of their own possession that he has promised to their great-grandparents in verse 8. God will remain true to his promises, not because the Israelites deserve it, but because he loves delivering his people, because he loves destroying other gods. God persists in verse 13, despite even Moses' struggle to believe. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Guys, if this is the promise that Israel had, right? The truth is, like, they're waiting for something to come. They're hoping that, that Yahweh will deliver on his promises, and they're struggling to believe it. Moses is struggling to believe it. And we don't, we're not looking forward to an exodus we're looking backward to the greatest liberation that has ever happened in Jesus Christ. Right? How much more confident can you be that God never is going to leave you, that he delights in taking those idols from you and, and stopping the slavery that you are bonded to and saying, I am your God. I will be the thing that justifies you. I am willing to look at you and tell you that you are enough. Right? And, I, and I'm willing to do that, and I'll, I'll give my own life to secure it. And do you believe that? Do you see how wonderful that is, how amazing that is? That's how we should come to him, not to, not to these helpless dead idols. We should come to God, to Yahweh instead. He is trustworthy. Let's, let's pray.